0: good afternoon to everyone and welcome to our webinar series on COVID-19. Today is the third week and today we have a very interesting uh, speaker lined up for you. Um, Now, uh, I would like to welcome everyone on behalf of Malaysian Society of Infection Control and Infectious Diseases and also ICR and NIH to this webinar series. Today, uh, I will introduce you to our moderator, Dr. Shanti Ratnam. Um, she is actually a physician by training and then went on to pursue uh, advanced training in intensive care. And um, subsequently, she was actually the head of intensive care unit in uh, Sungai Bulo Hospital from 2008 to 2018, uh, October. Subsequently, now she is joining Thompson Hospital since uh, October 2018. And um, she's very passionate about intensive care and she's done a lot of research in this field as well. So without further ado, Dr. Shanti, pass over to you. Thank you very much
1: for the kind introduction, Anusha. It's always a pleasure to meet all of you on on this platform. Um, I'm your moderator for today's session and I shall introduce the speaker for today, Uh, none other than Dr. Lee Chiu-Kyok. We fondly call her as CK. So basically... -hmm. Uh, CK um, holds a degree in uh, MBBS and went on to do her master's in anesthesiology from University of Malaysia in 2012. She completed it and in 2016, January to December 2018, uh, she completed her fellowship in intensive care. She is the head of the intensive care unit in Hospital Sungai since June 2019. Um, and since the onset of the pandemic, she has been involved in setting up of the intensive care unit uh, to receive the first COVID-19 patient. And up to December 2020, I'm told that ICUHSB has managed more than 500 critically ill COVID-19 patients. Um, and uh, Hospital Sungai has also achieved one of the lowest mortality in the country. Uh, Being one of the youngest intensivists in the country, um, CK has definitely uh, risen up to the challenge and has done all of us very proud in the times of increase in search capacity and scarce resources to accommodate one of of the biggest ICUs in the nation. And I believe so now that it's a 60 bedded intensive care unit. It's amazing. And so without much ado, I would like to now invite Dr. Lee to share her presentation today on uh, critical
2: COVID-19 treatment. Thank you, Dr. Shanti, for the kind introduction. And thank you also, Malaysia Society of Infection Control and also Infection Disease for uh, giving me this chance to, to, to give this talk uh, at this time. Let us start with the case that, we, that unfortunately we have seen uh, way too frequently over the past one year. Okay, Mr. HM, actually, he's a 44-year-old Malay man. He has hypertension on set amniolipine. He's diagnosed to have positive COVID on screening and then presented with fever for four days, shorn of breath on exertion and poor oral intake. A referral to ICU, he was day nine of illness, tachymic on high flow mass 10 liter per minute, respiratory rate of 40 to 45 breaths per minute, SPO2 of 94 to 95, and temperature is 39 degrees Celsius. So he was intubated, ventilated with bilevel ventilation. And on muscle relaxant infusion and sedation. So ABG post intubation, the pH is 7.28, pCO2 48, PO2 of 93, given us a pF ratio of 93 because the FiO2 is one. So the point of time we give peak of 12, and also peak, peak at the point of time is actually about 22, and PET2 about 20, about 16. He was subsequently prone for 16 hours because of pF ratio of 93, and also started on every metoprolol 150 milligram daily. So, we started to cover for uh, nosocomial sexist as well. Every bet using 4.5 gram QAD started. His ventilation improved markedly after proning and we were able to cut down the flo 2 to 0.5 within 4 hours. So, this is a chest X-ray post-intubation. Show bilateral, middle and lower zone opacity. So, he was supine after 16 hours of prone position. He's one of the lucky ones. And because after supine, we don't need to prone him back. Subsequently, he extubated after five days of mechanical ventilation. And he was on heavy metaprenisolon, 150 mg daily until uh, extubation. And the metaprenisolon will win off after extubation. Uh, and he was he charged to the ward after 13 days stay in the ICU. And subsequently, he charged home well after 21 days of hospitalization. So this is a test after seven days in ICU. saw a marked improvement. So COVID-19 is the pneumonia, is the... Uh, most common pneumonia we have seen for the past one year, I think, in Malaysia. So the clinical characteristic is a bit uh different as compared to other types of pneumonia. So uh from this uh, data that uh, this journal from this journal that published in uh in this Lancet Regional Health by Dr. Madame and the infection uh, infection disease team in hospital Sunaibulo, it actually show us that the clinical characteristic and the risk factor. Uh, for severe COVID-19 infection before they go into ICU. So formulation data from 1st of February to 30th of May, we have about 5,889 COVID-19 cases. And out of this, only 210 are uh, uh, presented with pneumonia with hypoxia and actually 63 of them only with multi-organ involvement. So their percentage actually is about 5%. So it's actually less than 5%. And the the, uh, the 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 group that actually showing a uh, critical illness one that means the multi uh, multi-organ involvement is only 1.1%. So it shows that uh, COVID uh, COVID-19 actually is very infectious, it can spread everyone, but not everyone gets ill. But who can get ill? So these are the characteristics uh, the the characteristic of this uh, a severe COVID infection in in, in Malaysia so those presented with uh, covid-19 uh, that require icu admission the number actually is 193 up to up to the, 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 the data was collected up to may so 51 of them actually require more than 14 days in icu and these 51 require mechanical ventilation okay and they have a characteristic like uh, they are having diabetic most of them actually having diabetics And also the CRP are relatively high, it's actually about 171. And uh, and, and then the LDH also is a little bit high. What are the risk factors associated with uh, severe COVID-19 disease? That means that uh, which group of patients are most likely to develop severe disease? So from the data that they analysed, they show that those patients with more than 51 years old and above are more likely to get severe disease. And then those uh, certain comorbidities, like for example, those patient with uh, chronic kidney disease, and those patients with chronic pulmonary disease, they are the patient, they are the group of patients that are most likely to get severe COVID. Of course, we think that obese huh, also will get severe COVID, but from this study, it's actually is not significant. So most of them presented with abnormal chest x ray. And the abnormal chest x ray actually is one of the main, main determined factor for them to get severe. And also they have actually high CRP levels. So this COVID-19 disease, uh, the severe COVID-19 disease, uh, they were manifest in different way. And we see different, different types of patients that come into our ICU. So uh, one group of them, actually, they, most of them, they stay in the ward for a few days. Once they get posted, they got caught into the ward and isolated inside the ward. So And then they are in day four or day five for your nurse. They must curry in the ward. So at day seven, six and day seven, then they will start to develop channel of breath. So the first one, actually, is channel of breath on exertion. Then after that, they were desaturated. Then they were required oxygen. And then by day 7, day 8, then they were referred to ICU. So this is the first, first batch that we saw during the March, no? during the second wave at time. So during ICU that time, they were referred to ICU at day 8. So then followed by the, whether they, they were resolved or they were required mechanical ventilation. So the other group of patients that we normally receive are those patients that present very late when their community spreads a lot that time. So they will just come in, then sorry, then swap, then positive. And this group of patients normally, they present with A I D S, And at point of time, then you can see renal failure because maybe from their hypoxia or maybe from the renal, the renal I mean the SARS-CoV actually accept the renal or maybe for the CRS. So, so they will see a lot of them actually got renal failure at the point of time. And then they have also some neurological failure, but very, very unlikely I saw neurological failure. So all those coming from community, of course, we don't worry about HAP. But then those from the what they saying like five days, already. so we have to consider HAP at that point of time. The one of the differential diagnosis, then that's why we will start empirical antibo- uh, antibiotics for them, and then we can look at the PCT level. Then only we will escalate later. So this COVID ARDS is a bit special compared to a classic ARDS. So what is the so different about this COVID nineteen ARDS? Okay, we see we see the patient that is actually they have this called something called happy hypoxia. When they are they are very they are they are hypoxic, but then they are still very happy away. They still can talk, they still can take KFC, you know. So and then after intubation also you see a bit a difference, no? Huh? After intubation in classic AIDS, normally the the, the PFA pressure will be high, their are, meat, they are, their their compliance actually is actually very low, you know. But the COVID ARDS, their mean compliance, static compliance actually is much, much, much higher as compared to, uh, to the normal ARD, plastic ARDS. And then in this group of patients, they also have the relative hypoxemia that actually not explained by their, not related to their stiffness for the lungs. That means when the lungs are actually not so stiff, but then they are still hypoxemic away. So this is uh, something special about COVID 19 ARDS. So we, we talk about like, maybe it's due to some pulmonary vascular disease that actually happening inside the COVID-19 uh, patients, you know. So maybe thrombosis happening and then got some angiogenesis and angiopathy actually happening as a contribute to this hypoxia, uh, hypoxia. And then their D-dimer actually is uh, abnormally high. And this D-dimer high means that they have a lot of death space ventilation as well. So these two operations are, have higher mortality. Okay, so there is different... Uh, so this uh actually come out with different phenotypes of uh, COVID-19 ARDS. So the type 1, the type 1 actually is due to this regulation of pulmonary perfusion. This group actually, they have low elastin, means they are high compliance. They have low VQ, they have limited PIP response. And then they will progress to phenotype H, which is actually pulmonary edema-like picture and ARDS-like picture. They have high lungs elastin, and then they have high recruitability, higher PIP response. So these are the two phenotypes that we can see in the ICU after you incubate the patient. Okay, so uh, thrombosis is another frequent complication of COVID nineteen. This bila logu actually uh uh published a paper, he said that out of three thousand hospitalized patients, uh hospitalized COVID nineteen patients, sixteen of them having thrombotic events, and most of them actually actually is arterial thrombosis rather than venous thrombosis. So among 800 ICU patients from the same paper, the rate actually is about 30, 39.4%. 13.6% actually is venous and 18.6% actually is artery. So the occurrence of thrombosis actually is an independent risk factor for mortality in COVID-19. So COVID-19 also uh, has presented with a lot of extra pulmonary mas- manifestations. The co- most common uh, manifestation that we see in ICU actually is renal impairment. So they normally can present with acute kidney injury. And then some of them actually presented with some transaminitis, some transaminitis and elevated b rubin. Liver failure are not so common. All right. GI abnormalities, maybe, yes, in the mild patient, but not in the severe case that we, mm, we, we saw. Thromboembolism, yes, we saw a lot of thromboembolism cases, but then they are not the big clot at the pulmonary trunk. No, they are not that type of patient. They are just the sub pulmonary embolism of course a group of them actually present with cardiac complication this is the group that actually is very uh, higher mortality I think so uh, we have patient actually presented with very very high lactate. you know he actually can be perfectly well in the morning and he just has some risk factor like diabetic and hypertension we can present it with a cardiogenic shock and when on scan there is a big pericardial infusion and we need to do a uh, a pericardial synthesis for him, for her. But eventually, the heart is just give way and uh, the plastic keep on going up and going up, and he eventually dies. So, these are the few extra pulmonary manifestations that we normally see in ICU. We do see mm-hmm. the myological uh, manifestation, huh? like, for example, they got special, special skin particular that we are wondering whether are they coming from the drugs that we are giving to them. So cytokine storm is another concept that is a very hot topic that people are talking about when this COVID-19 is starting that time. So uh, this cytokine storm is a hyper-inflammatory response that leading to host tissue damage. So what happens is actually this COVID-19 actually binds to the epithelial cell. When it bind to the epithelial cell, then our body response will recruit all the immune mediators to come into to, to the, to the lungs. So it is this activated T cell microplast and neutrophil, and then it will release a cytokine, a lot of cytokines and causing this cytokine storm. So these cytokines can be pro-inflammatory or anti-inflammatory. It can be doing good to the our organs and also doing bad to the organs. So it can go into to attack in the lungs that causing uh shortening of breath and also causing pneumonia and also causing uh, uh desaturation. So it's also attended the attack the brain, uh, but as up to now we we I think we only see stroke cases now. I have an MCA in I've seen before. Okay, so and then a cardiovascular abnorm, uh, uh, cardiovascular system involvement like for example they prefer with pericarditis. So the case that I, I say just now, actually when we do the pericarditis, we send the 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 the, the fluid for RTCR actually is negative. So, in the liver, it caused a transient rate in liver enzyme, and which actually results from its own. And in kidney, this is the most common complication we have seen. Huh? It's actually presented with AKI. So, 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 cytokine storm, is it relevant to COVID 19? So, people also query about this. Huh? So, Jama uh, actually published a paper uh, in actually June. He said that uh, in this study, they say that in this in the article, they actually commented that. The IL6 level in all this COVID nineteen uh COVID nineteen ARDS actually is very low, you know, as compared to the conventional ARDS IL6 level. So we I believe that actually more than IL6 is actually playing a role in this COVID nineteen ARDS rather than just IL6 itself. So that's why some of the patients we see that even tofilizumab they respond, but not all they will respond to Some will need betamethasone or some will need dexamethasone. So. So as I, uh, this is the same slide that I, I showed just now, because I want to, co- uh, to, to tell you that which group of patients that we will normally see. So we normally see the patient at this point of time, day eight of year when they already require five liters of oxygen. So criteria for ICU referral. So in Sungai Buloh, our ID are very efficient, I will say. They have a very close monitoring on the ward for all our COVID-19 patients when the when it's not overwhelmed when there are sick patients are not so much that time. So normally they will refer to us when the face mask is about uh five liter per minute. So NASAPRO normally they will take care on their own and they will start some steroid and the patient will recover and they will never refer to us. So they will refer to us when the patient is 6 mask of five liter per minute. Well then there is actually instability. And when the patient requires close monitoring on freed or vital signs, huh, for example, or those patients on heart failure, you know that you can only give a little bit more fluids, or huh? those patient, end-stage renal failure that requires dialysis so a little bit more of fluid also will cause SOB so you don't know which SOB you are dealing with you know it's because of COVID pneumonia or because of the fluid. so this group of patients may need close monitoring and then they will refer to us of course we don't take every patient to our ICU. if not our ICU will be very full so, so we, we will depend on the prognosis of the patient and the potential benefit of the intervention that that, that we can give to the patient and then, of course, depends on the bed availability. So when we got a lot of beds that time with the patient with chronic lung disease, with long-term, we stay in O4 for, for like five years, we also take in. But then when the resources are limited at time, then we need to choose patient. So certain patient that is actually good prognosis, then we will admit to our ICU. So intubation criteria. So no one to actually can tell you when to intubate. I think very difficult is a very subjective thing. But then, because when it's the starting of this pandemic, we don't know what to do. So we give a cat rule to our specialist, huh, when to intubate. So this is the two intubation criteria that I give to them. spo 2 less than 90 on high-flow mask, then you need to intubate the patient already. So when the patient shows a respiratory muscle fatigue that increased PO2, tachycardia, sweating, patient subjective feeling, then you have to intubate the patient. yesterday other day, we realized that this group of patients that never present with respiratory muscle fatigue, they are happily walking around with a Saturation of 90. You no, know? They still can walk to the toilet. You know? So they realize that uh, we are dealing with different type of patients. So after that, we come up with a revised, revised criteria for intubation. So intubation has to be done timely but not premature. We cannot intubate too early because too early, then the ventilator will all use up. Then we will no, don't have enough ventilator. That is also an a issue when there is a surge that time. So we actually intubate only when it's necessary. So normally, we'll bring them a little bit early, like uh, find, uh, when they are, find little oxygen to monitor in our ICU, then we started some steroids to give time for them to see whether they are, they are okay or not. So when should you intubate? So we revise this criteria. We, we, uh, the things that, that we need to uh, take into consideration is this date of deterioration. A patient can be morning. we have only nasal prone, Afternoon already changed to face mask 5 litre. Or night already on high flow mask. So this type of patient, you know that they are going to deteriorate very fast and your steroid effect may not be able to take in so fast. So you need to intubate them early. So you, you also anticipate what is the trajectory of the patient, you know. The patient staying in the ward early five days and SOB away. He's already got some aesthetic work or breathing and actually a little bit fatigue already. They can tell you when I cannot work, I cannot talk anymore of the doctor. So, so this group of patients, I think you need to help them and we have to intubate them so of course auto mental state and education and when the patient got difficult intubation because intubation in, in COVID-19 is a, uh, a very high risk of getting aerosol generating uh, generation so, so this group of patients we tend to intubate a little bit early because we want to have a well-controlled environment so that's why we intubate them a little bit early so these are a the few groups of patients that we normally intubate a little bit early. If not, then we will try them on hyponesal cannula. We will talk about hyphenasal cannula after this. Okay. So this support went ventilatory support in patients with AIDS that can to COVID-19. After you intubate, you need to set a ventilator. So uh, this Ferrado actually give a published a, a, a journal in this intensive care medicine recently, and he actually tell us that. The average PF ratio of intubation case actually is about 120 PF ratio at that point of time. So the, the compliance actually is about 35 mil, uh, centimeter H2O. The flexible pressure is about 25. The peak is about 12. And the duration of ventilation actually is a bit prolonged. So they only, at day 30, they only got four ventilators three days. And the mortality actually uh, at, at 28 days actually is 32%. And those with serious ARDS is actually 39%. This mortality with uh, ARDS in in COVID-19, in different different centres is different because um, uh, it's actually ranging from 40 to 60. Uh, it will depend on whether the, 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 the centre actually is overwhelmed or not. Of course, uh, we also published a, a study and this Haliza is my specialist. He actually uh, helped me to collect the data and we come up with this uh, clinical cost and outcome of ventilated critically ill patients uh, in Selangor State, Malaysia. So from our study, we found that our PF ratio on emission for this mechanical ventilated patient is almost the same as the previous study. So the day of illness when it's intubated actually is day eight. That's why I say day eight is the most dangerous day. Huh? So duration of mechanical ventilation, they normally ventilate about 10 days. And then uh, we do prone them during that point of time, uh, during that time. And then some of them actually re- receive dexamethasone, metaphydrate, and oxis in our, our 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 group of patients during March. And the organ dysfunction that we see, uh, the most of them actually uh, got AKI, and then four of them got pulmonary embolism. Only one of them got acute liver failure, and one of them got myocarditis. So in ARDS, uh, we practice thing called protective lung strategy. So the ventilator we use, you can use whatever pressure control, volume control, whatever control you want to use. But the principle is the same, which is called protective lung strategy. The tidal volume of 4 to 6 mL of predicted body weight and aim for pressure of less than 30 cm H2O and driving pressure of less than 15. So this, this protective lung strategy is present even before, before the COVID era. Um, so uh, all ARDS patients will ventilate with this same principle. So, the, the, the how to ventilate a COVID-19 patient, uh, Dr. Fong already presented uh, very well in the MSIC uh, uh, talk. You know, the video actually is recorded and is still available there. You all can go and read in detail there. So, we have some targets for mechanical ventilation. So, we Mspo 2 of uh, 88 to 95, PAO2 of 55 to 80. And we try to adjust the minute ventilation to achieve about 10 and to keep the pH of more than 7.5. So PIP, how much PIP you want to give to the patient. So WHO actually recommend a trial high PIP, you know. So up to now, no one can tell you how much PIP to, to give to the patient. So PIP should be individualized and titrated to the patient response. So a lot of ways that we can do in ICU to to, to, to to count this optimal PIP, you know, people use the ARDS uh, chart, you know, there is some, how much FiO2 that you give, how much PIP, you know. Some some people actually use... A, a standard like stepwise improvement of uh, recruitment and then find out the optimal peak from there, and then some people actually can use the pressure uh, type, uh pressure volume curve you know to find the optimal peak. So this is, is very detailed, so I won't explain here. In the slide, the okay. So after we ventilate them, they still hypoxic hypoxemia. What can we do? So, certain things that we can do for this uh, uh refractory hypoxemia. So, you use prune position, neuromuscular blockage agent, inferior nitric oxide, recruitment maneuver, or at move. So, up to now for COVID 19, uh for ARDS, prune position is the only one show show a uh, very good data in reduced immortality. The rest of it, the data are still controversial. In COVID 19, uh I think in our cases, we only use foam precision, neurobastilobocase, and ACMO. In nitric oxide, we don't use because uh, we only got, I think, a few tanks of nitric oxide ho- uh, in our hospital, and it's really in the department. So recruitment and the latest study actually show in ARDS, actually it causes more harm rather than benefit. So that's why we, ne- we didn't use. So evidence of foam position in ARDS have been present uh, even before, even before even before uh, the COVID era. In year 2001, this professor actually published this journal. It showed that uh, prone position in severe ARDS uh, reduced the mortality by half, you know, by half, and then my uh, DNA half lah. So, and then they prone the patient actually about 16 hours per day, and they prone it very early, between 24 to 48 hours. So, we actually uh, practiced this in our ICU. So, we prune our patient when the PF ratio actually below 150 millimeter mercury between 24 to 48 hours. So, WHO also recommend this now. And then, they, they, we prune for minimum of 16 hours. So, latest uh, surviving statistics guideline also say that the pruning, uh, the prone uh, duration actually can be from 12 hours to 16 hours. So, this is, this is uh, even WHO also recommend 12 to 16 hours we already use, so used to 16 hours, you know. It means that we prone today, tomorrow morning, only we supply the patient back. So, of course, we have to know the side effect of the proning and then the contraindication of the proning and all these things. So, we come out with a protocol for our Sunaybunlo Hospital a prone positioning in the intubated adult ICU patient. So, inside here, we actually teach people how to prone, you know. You know, prone, we require a lot of people. So, when you want to prone the patient, we need six of us, not six of people inside. So, we actually come out with a... The, the the roti chennai method we actually balut, we actually we actually cover the patient with the with the with the with the with a draw sheet you know so so uh we, we managed to reduce some of the um the people needed inside to prone the patient so you can you can see this uh this uh, this uh this uh, protocol in uh, by using this link so from our Sunai Bulo data uh we sh- uh of course our number is very small that time because we take the number uh up to up to middle of April only. So that time we have 49 mechanical ventilated patients and I think 14 of them we need uh to prune. So we, even this 14 patient we show a statistically statistically significant outcome, you know. Uh, he showed that the PF ratio actually improved, you know, the p-value actually is very, very low. So prone really can improve the PF ratio. So of course, then we also start neuromuscular blockage agent, muscle relaxant. So when you want to use muscle relaxant, you have to weigh between the uh, synchronization of the ventilation and also the development of this critical illness related weakness. We already use steroids in COVID patients. You know, we use TEXA, we use metaprenisolon, we use, you know, we use a lot of steroids already. So when you want to use muscle uh, relaxant, so the addition of muscle relaxant will cost more, more risk for the patient to develop this critical illness related weakness. Because of this, WHO actually recommend that uh, against the use of this uh, neuromuscular blockage agent, You know, they actually they say that shouldn't be routinely used. Except, except that when you see that there is ventilator dysmprony despite sedation or there is refractory hypoxemia or hypercapnia. But from my personal experience, I use a lot of muscle relaxant in prone. So most of my prone patients will get their muscle relaxant, but we prone for 16 hours, then my muscle relaxant will just last for 15 hours. After supply there, we will off the muscle relaxant and we will, we will assess the patient whether they require a second prone or not. So we found that um, the longer you infuse the muscle relaxant, the patient, the most likely that you will get this critical urnus, uh, polyneuropathy or myopathy. So I have one case that I actually prone seven times when, uh, when we are very free Free, yeah, not really free. When we got so not so much of COVID patient at that time, we actually prone seven times. And this patient actually very bad. He actually developed a very bad uh weakness that we had to trache him. After trachee, he had to be on mechanical ventilation for a month. So this this is like um uh, the side effect of the mes- uh, neuromuscular block agent. So you have to use it very cautious. So some recommendations, like for example, uh, so skyline, they, they, they recommend intermittent boluses rather than continuous infusion. Sorry, yeah, the slide is flat. Okay, how about ECMO? Current data uh, show that uh, the, there is no randomized control trials in ECMO at this moment of time. So the current data only limited to this observational study. So recently, there is a cohort study of 190 patients that received ECMO in the US. La. So, 66% of them survived, you know, and then they actually survive to hospital discharge in 60 days, also they still survive. So, in Singapore, the day I listened to the talk, they say they have like 16 patients, and then I think five of the patients actually survive. So, uh, they say that MO should be started very early, you no know, less than seven days, huh? the PF ratio less than 100, and then they, in the seven days when you started then the, the outcome is very good better the mortality actually is lower so you have to be considered in center with appropriate expertise lah. so like for example in Sungai Bulo hospital we don't have EMO. so when we want EMO we have to refer to to Sedang hospital and refer to, to, to UITM so you know when we want to refer to UITM then you, if, the, Bulo, uh, if the Sedang have to come to our ICU to do the EMO. Um, but the patient, when the patient requires MO, that time they are not suitable to transfer because their APF ratio are so low. Either. So, you can't transfer them. So, the whole team has to come to Sungai Bulo Hospital. So, if they come, the whole team has to come here and then they have to stop their elective and have to stop their a lot of things. you know. So, if the centre itself got the MO, then it's very good. it's very good, then you can try MO. So, in Sungai Bulo, I think we never tried we try to refer, but of course, we, we, we can't transfer the patient over there. So, of course, it's not cost-effective, you know. Mo is very expensive in pri- I think, it's in, as I saw, they say in private, it costs about 150k, the kind of things, you know, it's so expensive. So, that's why we didn't try MMO in, in Sungai Bolo Hospital. So, we only consider MMO when the PF ratio is actually less than 50 millimeters of mercury for three hours, where the PF ratio actually less than 80 for six hours. So you have to try early, less than seven days. You no, know, all this is from theory, lah. So after seven days, the lung is very stiff and, and so bad already. Then no point that we try and anymore. So the reversibility is very important, lah. I think there is the things that is very important here when we want to use and So if the lung is still reversible, then yes, and the more have a role. Okay. So how about a weight prone? Uh, how about a web prone? So, the data for this awake prone actually is very limited to this observational study. Um, uh, the, this Ferrado actually published a prospective uh, multi-centre observational study. So, he said that uh, in their patient, uh, 199 patients, they're putting on, on high-prone cannula and then they and 55 of them practice away prone So, awake prone actually showed that a trend towards a later intubation. But the later intubation means it's by one day, you know but it doesn't reduce the mortality. It doesn't reduce in the risk of getting intubated. No, the patient will still be getting intubated. So, we do practice uh, a weight prone in our ICU. Uh, in the, um, you know, even in ICU, I think in the ward also, we, we, we will try to ask the patient to prone on their own. Even they start, they start to have a little bit of SOB, we will ask them to sleep in prone position. You know, uh, we actually give them a leaflet. So, we actually ask them to prone, like for example, uh, it can, it's, actually, it's a proper prone position with a pillow on top of the chest and also support the head. So if it, it's very uncomfortable for patients actually, especially when they are SOB away and you ask them to prone, it's very difficult to prone the patient when they are SOB. So we teach our nurses to, to help them to prone. So uh, of course, these old people, they will tell you that your ache cannot prone. So of course, we give the, the other choices. No? For example, ask them to sitting up 60 to 90 degrees or ask them to sit in that curb. So sometimes the patient is very funny, you know, they can be better in one left lateral, but then the right lateral is not good. But this is because due to the ventilate, uh, ventilation perfusion inequality of the lungs. Uh. So when you your bed lungs is up, then actually the ventilation will be better. So WHO actually recommend that um, they suggest a weight pronation, uh, a weight prone position for severely critically ill patients, of uh, COVID-19 requiring oxygen. So we actually can practice prone in in, in your hospital. So how about high-flow nasal cannula? So high-flow nasal cannula already got the evidence in hypostemic failure for a long time, you know, since 2015, this polari came out with this study, showing that it actually reduced mortality in both ICU and up to 90 days. And it's actually lower the 28 days incubation rate as well and also increased the degree of comfort uh, because this high-flow nasal cannula is actually, how to say, when we give 30 to 40 litres per minute kind of flow to the patient, it actually humidified and this this unification actually increased a lot of comfortability to the patient. And the patient feel that hyphoon cannula is actually more comfortable as compared to the biped mask that we are using. So it also reduces the respiratory rate. But the evidence for hypercapnic patient is not so good. So how about the evidence of this hyphoon cannula in, in COVID-19? So uh, from this study, actually, it's a cohort study as well. It's not a randomized control trial. They are um, 16... Two patients, sixty-three rec- of them actually required intubation, and thirty-four actually succeeded with this high-flow oxygen, uh high cannula. So, so the, the 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 up to now, uh, the, the evidence for this high-flow uh, cannula actually is not there still to reduce intu- uh, to, to reduce the uh, intermittent to, to reduce the, the mortality rate or to reduce uh, to prevent intubation. So we still need to be very careful when we use cannula. But of course, it's a things that we can use to actually wait for the steroid to work, you know. You you actually you can actually wait, uh, use the hyphen cannula to, to prevent to, to 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 drag the patient to wait for the steroid to, 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 to take the effect. So, of course, when you use hypheneso cannula, we are very worried that uh this this there is a dispersion rate, you no, know, the dispersion of this uh this the dispersion aerosol dispersion from this hyponatal cannula. So, this uh, Lijie actually show uh, do a study on this hyponatal cannula. It actually showed that the dispersion distance actually is lower as compared to non-rebidding mask or venturi mask. So, how about non-invasive mechanical ventilation? We don't use NIV in hospitals, unable because NIV is not proven for uh, not proven for uh, hyposemic failure. So, maybe certain group uh, we can benefit from it. Huh? For example, patient with. Coad or patient with apo cardiogenic apo yes and obstructive sleep apnea this niv may be useful but when you use niv that time you have to keep it in a in a in a negative pressure room because the aerosol dispersion can be high so other managed supportive management is like feed management energy science and sedation and thromboprophylaxis i will cover it very briefly only. so we use conservative feed management thromboprophylaxis we 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 know that the higher risk of getting thrombophylasis in COVID-19 patients. So because of that, some people actually use suggested therapeutic dose, you know. But then uh, the prosthetic evidence actually is lacking and the caution actually is essential, you know, be, uh, because we saw this all this group of patients that you want to give thrombophyllasis, you are actually giving them that star become as well. So and then they are mechanical ventilated, you know. So the risk of upper GI is actually very high. So if they are old and you got your renal failure and you're giving a therapeutic dose, I think the very higher is the patient actually uh, getting bleeding complications. So in my practice, we only use uh, a, a populated low only in ICU. Of course, in certain group of patients, like for example, in a young patient, big size, like for example, 80 kg, my dose can be at 80 mg daily. So the thrombo has to be individualized to everything, every patient and not to be protocolized. So among all the pharmacological therapy for COVID-19, I think the only one with the evidence is actually the, the corticosteroids. Random severe and very CT-need, both of them actually uh, improve the symptoms. So, so corticosteroids is the drugs that actually prove to reduce the mortality. So uh, uh, in this uh, recovery trial, the serial actually showed reduced uh, 28 days mortality, reduced the need of the incubation and reduced the length of hospital stay. So of course, in this recovery trial, they use dexamethasone. So they use 6 milligrams per day for 10 days. So after that, uh, because people want to confirm this, uh, they do some meta-analysis. Uh, they take in seven big randomized control trials so, the, this randomized control, this, this meta analysis actually showed that uh, steroids prove that actually steroids uh, really improve the mortality with the odd ratio of 0.66. So, why they choose dexamethasone? Because dexamethasone has more glucocorticoid activity rather than mineralocorticoid activity. So, mineralocorticoid activity will cause hypernatremia, volume overload. So this is not the things that we want in ARDS patient. That's why dexamethasone was chosen. So metaprenisolone, we do use a lot of dexamethasone in, in, in the wards. And when the patient comes to ICU, that time we try to use metaprenisolone because uh, metaprenisolone actually got better lung penetration. And then he has actually a long track record of successful use of inflammatory lung disease. Of course, from the study here, you only see that uh, only one study got randomized control trial here using Metaprenisolon. And the dose they are using actually is only 40 milligrams every half-hourly. So these are the dose they are using. So people only recommend Metaprenisolon when the DEXTA is not available. So these are the evidence that we have now. How about Tocilizumab? So I do, we do use a lot of Tocilizumab in Sungai Hospital. Um, not that we are rich, but I think we have the uh, a support also from the ID so this interleukin 6 is one of the mediators that play a very key role in this cytokine storm so a lot of the data for this autism toxizum- li- actually is very is, is actually very mixed you know some observational study actually show that the this uh toxilizumab actually improved the survival you know the observational study of course this stone at uh, new england and general medicine is actually published about in November or October when the third wave is starting that time. he said that toxizumab did not show benefit among 240 patients in COVID-19. So there was increase in percentage of worsening disease at 14 days. So that's why people start questioning about this toxizumab and then that's why all these people are saying that whether cytokine storm is actually really happening in COVID-19. So further data on this toxizumab actually is needed. So a few days ago, I saw this in one of the chat groups. Uh, it's a preprint article. They say that uh in patients admitted to uh, hospital with COVID-19, which is under the recovery for, It actually showed that uh, tofilizumab improved the mortality in addition to the steroids. You know, when you give together with the steroids, actually it improved the, uh, improved the survival and other, other clinical outcomes. So we are still waiting for this study to be published now. Of course, convalentum plasma we never use at all in our ICU in Sunay Buloh because we think that convalentum plasma doesn't work. Of course, now there's no data on it as well. Okay, so now I want to go to the second case. Okay, this is a case that I just want to bring up, but my presentation is going to end very soon already, with something that I want to bring out to you all. uh, So, another type of patient that we are seeing. So this patient actually is a 64-year-old, ex known case of diabetes, present with fever and cough for 7 days, RT positive, they were shown of breath a day 10, subsequently intubated. Post-intubated, he's actually ventilated on SIMV pressure control mode, peak of 10, generating good tidal volume and peak airway pressure actually is about 20. So he has started on calystra. This is the first group of patients that we are seeing at the time. Uh, the public group, no steroid were given. So he was extubated on day 15 of illness. So he was re- intubated for hypostemic failure at day eighteen of illness. ABG that time show a very bad CO2 retention, okay, and also uh, uh, hypoxemia as well. He was subsequently turned to prone position. So that time we don't know what to do, so we turn everybody prone, okay. So then, then the time every PA patient go up to forty six, we are so worried whether I, is it we are dealing with something like a pneumothorax or something. We do a chest X-ray to see if there's no pneumothorax. Then we check ETT, no block, nothing. So, pre-patio pressure, then we measure actually is 42, and the driving pressure is 30, it's very, very high. So, after that, after proof, the ABG improved. Of course, the bicarb actually is 35 at the point of time already. So, he was worsening non oregulate AKI. He was started on miropinum and mycophengen, and then we did a HRCT for, for him. So, this uh, HRCT actually show co- organizing pneumonia pattern, of course, with underlying some fibrotic changes already. So we, we, did, we treated him with every pranisolong 500mg daily for 5 days and subsequently went to tap-pranisolong 60mg daily. So of course, he was infected with MRO, had a prolonged stay in ICU, and then tracheostomy was done and then subsequently went off. He was discharged after 70 days, 71 days in ICU with nesoprong oxygen and rehab follow-up. So 4th of February, the our rehab saw him. So the CT scan said that the density, the diffuse ground glass density had resolved and end up uh, with some fibrotic changes me. So, this is the x ray latest x ray Currently, he is at home with uh, oxygen concentrator. So, organising pneumonia in COVID-19, in virus, in virus pneumonia, actually is happening. So, um, we've seen a lot of this organising pneumonia recently because of increasing use of CT scan. Of course, interpretation of CT scan of this uh, co-organizing pneumonia is very difficult. It's not so easy, you know. So when you do CTPA, the radiologist reported uh, organizing pneumonia. So during that time, do you need to pause the patient? These are the questions that we need to ask ourselves before we leave the treatment. So this talk, I think, is going to be very long and another, another topic. And I think we will continue later on. So take-home message here is for COVID-19 patients, we need early identification. Those patients that admit to us very early and then we screen in the ward and then they start DEXA in the ward, and they start with a PrEP in our ICU, and then we early intubate them, they have better outcome. So this is the patient that I, I presented just now and he's actually a very happy go lucky patient and he's currently now at home, I think NYHA 4. So thank you very much.
1: Thank you very much for that uh, very thorough presentation CK covering, uh, you know, heroically so many aspects of managing a critically ill patient uh, with COVID-19 in ICU. And uh, I'm sure there are many questions. I can see about 26 questions here for you already. Oh my
2: God, (laughs) it's already one hour. (laughs) Sorry, Dr. Yeah. Okay.
1: Okay. So I want to start off with the uh most famous question here that has the highest number of points and
0: basically
1: first question i'm sure everyone is waiting for us to do ecmo waiting for which hospital first is going to start doing ecmo and i know that we have one hospital that has to uh, do ecmo um in uh, ards in uitm but unfortunately the patient uh passed on so the question here is will ecmo be useful in ards covid patients and to support critically ill COVID patients for whom ventilation is insufficient to sustain blood oxygen levels.
2: Okay, I think I explained... I think I explained this thing in the Edmo section just now, maybe a bit too fast. Okay, so, okay, Edmo. Yes, Edmo, whether useful or not. Okay, the data actually now actually uh, only limited to observational studies. Okay, the cohort study that uh 190 patients 66 percent actually survived and then have to hospital discharge, and also so of course you need to think about the cost huh? the cost, and then the 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 whether the patient the people are very good in doing EMO or not, this this thing maybe this this time maybe is coming from a EMO co- uh, center you know it's not the center that we only do one or two EMO at one year kind of thing you no know? so so that's why I don't uh whether EMO is useful or not. I think the data are not so strong yet, but then if you've got the expertise, then I think you can do.
1: It. Yeah, I totally agree with that. Expertise and, and a very selective group of patients who don't respond to prone and very hypoxemic and Yes. Mm. Okay, so the next question I think is uh, very famous is, you know, people are still confused about, you know, should CPR be done in patients with had a cardiac arrest in spite of having been given every possible treatment? And if you do need to, which are the type of patients um, and when do we discuss DNR?
2: Okay. (laughs) Okay, this is a very difficult question to answer because it's a, how to say it's a a lot of gray area here. Okay, so whether CPR should be done or not? So it depends on which stage are you seeing the patient and why the patient is so, you know? And then when do you see the patient? If the patient is coming in from community, bring to ED, a COVID-19 patient, bring to ED, and then it's already no ROST uh, at the point of ta- uh, ED. So the, 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 the survival rate actually is less than 0.03%. So this kind of patient, I don't think you need to CPR anymore in ED. Of course, the patient is very well, it's already activated to a hypo cannula in the ward, in the, in, the, in the ICU. And he's very well, we are expecting a recovery on him. And then suddenly, he pulled out the headphone and cannula. I think this group of patients, we need to do CPR. And then not picking up by someone, then we actually need to do a CPR. So this thing is actually very obligatory. Um, then another group of patients is actually, they are very, very poor pre-morbid. Like for example, they already got long-term oxygen therapy at home. work a little bit also SOB already. The lung reserve are so limited. And then they already come here at that time, already got multi, multi-organ failure. So I don't see this group of patients, we should CPR them. Whereas, and then some patients that we try already like 30 days in ICU, 30 days in ICU. And the 30 days also, you cannot win your FIO2. You know, your FIO2 keep on getting FIO2.8. I actually got this group of patients because we are very new at that time. We don't know whether the patient will improve or not. We actually went delayed them for one month. One of my patients actually is 78 years old, and we actually went delayed for one month. So this, this patient actually, I think when, he, when she asked to, so I don't think we need to CPR because it's already very late stage. And all the treatment had been failed already. So no point. I hope I answered the question, Dr. Shanti. <laughs> yeah,
1: I, I think that's very well answered. You know, It, it depends on where it happened, how much has been done before the arrest has taken place. What is the pre-morbid like of the patient? Uh, if the patient has never had a trial or even treatment, he was very well in the ward and he's just suddenly arrested, yes, maybe myocarditis or something, yes, then you would definitely want to try. So I think we can't fix and say yes, we do or we don't do. It has to be tailor made according to the cases. And as you said, yes. it's really very bad. And everything has been done. You you probably would have already discussed DNR issues as well. Yeah.
2: Yes. Okay.
1: So we'll move on to this uh, awake prone position, which is now the trend. I think everyone is very excited about it. Using it in the wards, medical wards. Um. So is there a role of prone position in early management of awake, non-intubated air uh, patients? I think you already very clearly explained, you make them all lie in the prone position so they actually improve their gas exchange. Um, ARDS intubated COVID patients. Maybe you can uh, throw some light.
2: Yes, yes, yes. ARDS uh, COVID patient definitely got rolled huh? The This Proceva Star uh, trial already showed you that prone position improved ventilation. So improved oxygenation, improved mortality by half. So awake prone, Awake prone, we do a lot in our in our ICU. We do see improvement, but not everyone will have a good result. Some people will still progress, you know. Some people will improve. So at the moment, the data is only limited to observational study. So it's not so strong yet for, no strong RCT to support this. Uh, Awake prone is non-intubated patient. But I guess nothing to lose, right, for us to try. Yeah, we actually try, Whatever we can to, to, to prevent, to to, to, to to delay the intubation if we can.
1: Yeah. And I think there's also this uh, duration of time that you would give for the trial of awake prone. If you're seeing that they're not improving in like four hours or five hours, the PF ratio is not really improving, then these are the patients you know they are not actually moving forward. Then you have to consider the, the next
2: intubation. Patient.
1: Yeah. Okay. We have. Um, also, I think uh, a lot of people are still confused about dosing of anticoagulation for patients who come in with stage 5 uh, uh, COVID infection. Should we be giving them BD because they are high risk um, and uh, or should you just give them the prophylactic dose? I think you did explain that, but maybe you can just stretch on a little bit for those who still are not so clear about the uh, treatment mm-hmm. of anticoagulation.
2: Mm, current data actually show that uh, there's no data show that uh, treatment dose is more superior. So whether treatment dose cause more bleeding, the data also is not so clear yet. So at this moment of time, from our observationals, uh, uh, from the patient that we, we, we see in ICU, we actually individualize every single patient. So if the patient is very old, and like for example, 70 years old, you know, they are very easily to get upper G bleed. they are on DEXA. So this cooperation we are very worried, you know, we only will start prophylactic, we only will start the therapeutic dose huh, when there is evidence of uh, pulmonary embolism. Like for example, we will do CT scan because in below we are very good, we are very good because the, the radiology are very supportive. So we actually can do CT scan for a lot of our patients. So the CTPA didn't uh, show any pulmonary embolism, then we would just use prophylactic dose. If the CTPA shows some supplemental pulmonary embolism, yes, then we would use the therapeutic dose. So we are still using prophylactic dose rather than the treatment dose. Now.
1: Okay, so I hope that has answered the question uh, quite clearly. Um, Then there's a lot of hype about this vitamin C um, in ICU. I think there are lots of people who want to try out IV vitamin C in ICU. And I know that in Sumai below you have done... Uh,
2: used it so maybe you can share some of your experience, CK? Okay, the use of vitamin C in ICU started back when they were septic shock, you know? Uh, Paul married in Australia, he actually, where? Australia, I think so. Yeah, he actually really likes vitamin C and he come up with a study saying that vitamin C combined with, with uh, thiamine and, uh, uh, and hy- uh, steroids actually can improve mortality in septic shock. So that's why this concept coming even with COVID-19. So the physiologically, this vitamin C actually got a lot of antioxidant effect, you know. So when we use vitamin C, the patient, the first thing that you see is their skin becomes radiant. You know, they become very gross, radiant, you know. Then their talk can improve markedly, you know. Very fast, you know, the epithelialization very fast. The wound healing actually improves. So we do use vitamin C in ICU. But I think if, if for one month, you know, from the third wave, during the third wave, that time, uh for one month and after that the, the the stock actually is very limited and we stop using. So currently study actually been conducted. Up to now there is no randomized control trial as well. And it's just observational study people say that vitamin C actually improves the mortality. So the evidence are not so strong, but uh some ongoing vitamin C trial is ongoing now and we're still waiting for I think about 13 ongoing vitamin C trial now in the whole world now. Even Sunai is actually doing one. I think Dr. Kasing actually starts uh, start doing vitamin c study now so whether it's improved in pf ratio uh, but overall you can see improvement in the wound and everything but of course if this is happening in the wound of course there is improvement in the, uh, the the lungs as well i think so we don't have the objective data for that
1: okay thank you for that answer i think there's also this um issue about uh, a lot of patients who present to the intensive care units nowadays i mean you know, in the last five years, have actually been morbidly obese. And I think those who actually have come in with COVID where the weight is like 100, 150 kilos, um, the question is, how do you even uh, prone them uh, and have some same sort of problem in your centre? They are having problems proning all of these people with big belly. You know, how do you prone them and not have any sort of injuries from this proning?
2: Okay. um, Yeah obese patient when we saw them we will be like hi we need to prone now. Huh? we were headache so actually we prone them before la. I have prone 150 kg before um okay so what we do is actually we, we, we put a lot of padding you know a, a lot of, of the, the pillows you know we use a lot of padding over here over the shoulder and over the iliac crest so uh, also we we actually uh use some head ring for the for the face la, to reduce the pressure sore. so of course we do a lot of of prophylaxis also we 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 uh, like, like for example the chin here uh, very easy to get sore you know our patient one of it actually some he come up with a new tube one there is a saw there they actually causing some I think some mental nerve injury I think so because from the prone position so after that we actually improvise uh, we actually put a lot of uh, the, the 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 pressure ulcer prevention or those like dressing over the face all the bony area to prevent the pressure sore so, we do prone the, the good prognosis of this patient. The good prognosis, one, we actually prone them and they show marked improvement after proning. So, I think it's worthwhile to prone them. Of course, you need more manpower for that. Yeah. And then after pro, that time, you have to really uh, ask the nurses to, 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 to turn the head nah? every two, three, you know, every two hours, they have to adjust a little bit the head so to prevent the pressure stalls over the face. The, the uh, so, so far, we see a lot of improvement after we come up with this protocol thing and then and then after we saw a lot of this pressure saw and everything. So now actually most of the patients when we prone, except the new the, the 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 one that we've gone through with us, the patients that we've gone through with me, and we know that how to prevent it. Yeah, we actually put a lot of a lot of like padding here and there to, to prevent the pressure sore. So we actually put prone them and then of course need more manpower. Lah. Hmm. So we have the same problem now. We just have to do it.
1: So everything has to be done only then you prone the patient because you can't do anything after you prone. So all the padding is to go on prior to you proning them. And you have to have yeah. sponges and all of these things that you you definitely need to purchase in your ICU and keep for this purpose. Yeah. Yeah. So um then there's also a the, lot of them who, who I think are having the same problem where patients are dependent on oxygen at one month and there's a difficulty in weaning off ventilator any other strategies ck i'm sure you have had a lot of patients where <laughs> ventilating you know after one month still needing oxygen you know how do you manage this group of patients
2: okay most of these patient then that's why we pay late that's why the sungai bulo mortality come out after two months i think after one month <laughs> so in april or may then you start to have see oh sungai bulo patient dies. sungai bulo patient diet. Yeah, we ventilate them for one month, and we can't find because the lungs become fibrotic already, so we can't win off their oxygen. You know, so uh, people talk about antifibrinolytic, uh, antifibrotic agents, and it's actually one of those very expensive. I think it's about twelve thousand, is it? I think something like that, fifteen thousand kind of thing Yeah, so we do refer, uh, um, we do see this group of patients. So the second wave, of that time this group of we at the end of them, most of them die la, because they will die from the infection. Or uh, the kids can off, win off the ventilator if they are FiO2.5 point, point, point and below. Normally, they can be win off and change to they can be win off one. But a lot of time, they cannot, then they have to be on track key. La. So, so, so I don't rule track key on all those patients that require ventilator for very long time. So, a lot of time by, by one month, and we try off. And it doesn't resolve and we actually pillate them
1: yeah i think one month is a fairly good try for a patient where the FL2 requirement is just not coming down isn't it the lungs all yeah fine. unless you do a lung transplant so you have to realize at some point your lung is you've done a CT scan you found out the pathology is irreversible then you draw your line and you say look i can't fix this anymore yeah i think we have not gone into the one last thing that i really want to uh, 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 ask is also the fact that a lot of them have actually brought up questions on steroids. There's still a lot of uh, doubt about the use, uh, number one, the dosing, number two and thirdly is, you know, when do you wean the steroids off? how do you do the weaning of the steroids? What's the maximum dose? Then you say okay, now I start weaning. Okay.
2: So as, you, as I say, no evidence for for the only evidence for steroid is reduced mortality is, is for dexamethasone. So metapred, all these things is using by off huh? label <laughs> So we use metaprenisolon a lot in Sunay Hospital because we believe metaprenisolon do better. So metaprenisolon has better lung penetration and then got actually long history uh, in, in, in ICU. So at the admission at that time, normally we will start 1 or 2 milligrams per kg one or two milligrams per kg. So normally about hundred uh, seventy five kg, men, 150 milligrams. So that's the dose that we normally use. Lah. So when the patient's oxygenation doesn't improve after 24 to 48 hours, then we will increase the metaprenicillin dose to four or five mg guess, per kg. So of course, at that point of time, we will do a CT scan, a CTPA. So we will see that whether there's any pulmonary embolism or any evidence of organizing pneumonia. So when there's evidence of organising pneumonia, um, we, uh, uh, we shall refer to a respiratory physician to start uh, high-dose steroids. Lah. So in Sungai Buloh, we will start ourselves. We give about 500 milligrams of uh, steroids. So organising pneumonia, the methylprednisolone dose actually is a pulse methylprednisolone. We use about 500 to 1 gram per day, a total dose of 3 to 5 grams over 3 to 5 days. So after that, you have to maintain with tetprenic And because this air this, AI, this uh, organizing pneumonia, post-infection organizing pneumonia are a little bit different from this cryptogenic uh, organizing pneumonia. So that's why the tech is not for long term. It has to be winning off when there is clinical improvement. So every, I think uh, every every one week like that huh, we will cut down by 10, like then, like 10. So the pakcik the that we saw just now, actually we went off the step uh, prednisolone before going home. So at this moment of time, he actually didn't talk on any more serious allergy. uh. So we went off in, in ICU itself, we went off over one month period kind of things now. So this is the dose that we are using in, in, in Sungai Buloh Hospital. But of course, Malaysian Society of Intensive Care recommend the use of DEXA even in mechanical ventilator patients. I think they have their point, you know. The point is um you no know, when you use metaprenisolon, your, your ICU have to be very clean. You cannot have infection. So once you got infection, the patient will die. So that's why the infection control is very important in, 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 in ICU or, or in, in any of the what that you want to use metaprenisolon or, or whatever, uh whatever whatever, whatever whatever steroids. So 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 far, the evidence is only for uh, the DEXA, so that's why the American Society of Intensive Care is recommending DEXA in in mechanical ventilated patients. Unless there is CT scan evidence of organising pneumonia, then they will refer to respiratory physician to start the pulse metaprenicola. Did I answer the question, Dr. Shanti? Yes,
1: very well, very well. And of course, no intensive care discussion stops without talking about fluid management. So that's going to be the last question because we've passed an hour already so doctor, should we aim positive or negative balance? That was the last question, CK.
2: Yes. Um. Whether should we aim negative or positive balance, I think you have to depend on what stage of patient you are seeing. So, so if the patient is primary lung pathology and the kidney is normal, so normally in ARDS, we tend to give negative fit balance. So we monitor the IO very closely and then we will tend to give a little bit of less risk huh, to, to actually aim a little bit of negative balance. So when the patient presents to you in shock, in very bad shock, then the patient requires fluids. So then, of course, you need to give uh, positive balance fluid, you know. So, so, so this will depend on your fluid assessment. Huh? Fluid assessment in critical care, Free responsiveness and free assessment in critical care is another big topic and it will take me another hour to explain, you know, maybe one hour also cannot finish. So so this one it will be another topic, you know. Some people use echo to see, some people use uh, vigilio, you know, the the things. So so a lot, a lot of things to to, to to explain here. So it will take very long. Another another topic, I think. Yeah, you have to. Hmm.
1: And I totally agree. And I think she has put it very nicely. At which phase are you involved? At the phase where you know it's a, a septic shock, you need the initial fluid resuscitation, you're going to be a bit more conservative in these patients with lung conditions. So I think we've already passed our time, uh, 10 minutes past the time. And uh, CK has really done a great job in wonderful presentation and wonderful uh, answering of all of these questions. So thank you very much for all the time that you have spent in Sungai Bulo saving lives and uh, time spent teaching everyone. You know, it's intensive care and anesthesia. So a lot of units don't have intensivists. Sungai Bulo is lucky you were there. Many units are run by anesthetists. So I hope this uh, presentation and the webinar has helped uh, and will help the anesthetists in the whole of the country uh, to manage because I think they are still the backbone because there's only like 25 Intensivists in this country versus so many anaesthetists. So I will end this webinar by saying that uh, the take-home message, basically, in any critically ill patient—not COVID, but any critically ill patient—is early identification of those who are going to require uh, intensive care services. So that every ICU should have a criteria of bringing them in early, monitoring them early, early intubation. You give a time frame; it doesn't work. You then just proceed. And with regards to steroids, I think uh, the data is, is quite clear that you know the de- uh, dexamethasone recovery trial yes, already uh, being used by the ID team, the medical team in the ward. So when they come to ICU, then you tend to go one step ahead, methylprednisolone, and then the organizing pneumonia, a little bit more methylprednisolone. And uh, don't forget from word mm-hmm. dominant VTE prophylaxis, treatment doses, uh, and of course, um, uh, looking at fluid balance is also very crucial in uh, patients who are ventilated. Infection surveillance, because we are doing so much of steroid usage, we have to have a very good protocol for uh, infection surveillance, like you know, bi weekly infection surveillance, uh, looking at all of these aspirates uh, uh, and cultures. Uh, make sure that your infection control measures in the ICU, well fit, uh, uh, CK, that it's all in, uh, in place protocolize a lot of things so it becomes easier when you're running a big unit. So I think CK has also done that, has made a lot of protocols. And, you know, thank you so much for all of the links that we can go in and have a look. So in summary, we've had an extremely interesting session today. And uh, do join us again next week, the same time, the same day. And next week's topic is again very much related to intensive care. And it's on DNR and ethics in COVID-19. We will discuss on ethical challenges in COVID-19 pandemic. So thank you, everyone. We'll see you all again the next week. Thank you, CK, and to all the organizing committee out there behind. We can't see you. Thank you very much for all your help. Thank you. Thank you, Shanti.